welcome to the Brain Body Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Cerise, Johns Hopkins doctoral candidate and mind, brain, and movement specialist. In these episodes, we explore how the mind, brain, body, and environment interact, and why understanding this interaction can help you right now, today, to improve your physical, emotional, cognitive, and social well-being. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump in. Have you ever wondered why knowing what behaviors need to change and even wanting to change them is not enough for most people to create sustainable self-care behaviors like regular exercise and getting enough sleep? Well, for over 25 years, Dr. Michelle Seeger, our guest today on the Brain Body Fitness Podcast, has been conducting focused research on this topic. She has been directly helping consumers, professionals, and organizations bridge this gap through her unique integration of leading-edge science, lifestyle coaching, curriculum development and evaluation, and direct-to-consumer marketing. Dr. Seeger is the best-selling author of No Sweat and a sustainable behavior change scientist. She directs the University of Michigan's Sport, Health, and Activity Research and Policy Center, has translated science into sustainable behavior change messages and programming for decades, and is recognized as a pioneer and leading authority in this field. Dr. Seeger's science-based approach to creating sustainable behavior change related to healthy lifestyles and well-being has made her a sought-after speaker, sustainable behavior change trainer, consultant, and learning intervention expert for global organizations seeking to accelerate and sustain positive change. Her clients include Adidas, Anytime Fitness, Beaumont Health System, EXL, Google, Harvard Medical School, and many more. She is a National Institute of Health funded researcher, holds a doctorate in psychology, a master's degree in health behavior and health education, and a master's degree in kinesiology from the University of Michigan. Her science-based calls to action for health promoters to stop promoting health and to rebrand health as well-being are currently changing policies, programs, and practice across the healthcare, wellness, and fitness industries. Well, Michelle, hi, and Thank you for spending some time with us today on the Brain Body Fitness Podcast. In today's episode, I'm super excited for our listeners to hear you talk about your research because I think they'll find that your findings are immediately useful, easy to implement, inexpensive, and maybe best of all, fun. I'm thrilled personally to get to have this conversation because I feel like I'm talking to one of the rock star researchers from my dissertation. I, I, <laughs> I first ran across your work in 2011 in a study you published in the International Journal of Behavioral Nutrition and Physical Activity, and it was called Rebranding Exercise, Closing the Gap Between Values and Behavior. And the findings and messaging of the article are really provocative and interesting because they run counter to people's intuitions and certainly a lot of the messages we hear in the health and fitness industry. Uh, many people, including health professionals, intuitively believe that um, marketing exercise programs with health improvement as the goal will surely be the thing that gets people to sustain exercise behavior, because after all, who doesn't want to be healthy, right? <laughs> but your data, right. it does not support this intuition. And furthermore, you suggest 
that we stop promoting health goals and instead rebrand health as well-being. Can you walk us through what you mean by this and why rebranding exercise has incredibly important implications for uh, behavior sustainability? Sure. Well, you know, I have to I have to say that until my data suggested that exercising for health-related reasons wasn't such a great idea, I thought it was. So that was that went against one of my hypotheses, which is, you know, just important to know. Um, I knew that promoting physical activity for weight loss was a, was very harmful for long-term sustainability and high-quality motivation, but I had assumed that health was a good reason. And when that we got that finding, it was really a head scratcher. And to you know, to be really honest, it was concerning to me at first because I thought, oh my gosh. You know, if health isn't a good motivator, like what's going on in the world? Um, and after digging into other literatures and thinking more about it, there's a few reasons why health as a reason for adapting uh, behavior like physical activity or changing our eating to be better, why it's actually non-optimal despite being incredibly logical. So one reason is because um, it's vague. It is very nonspecific. What does it mean? What does it feel like to be healthier? Um, so, and then even if we know what it's supposed to mean from a biomarker perspective, uh, we may not get, and we likely won't get feedback that it is um, when we are improving our health through physical activity, you know, how often do we get our cholesterol tested, for example, or, you know, whatever um, biomarker we're looking for. Um, now that, so th those are some reasons why, and the, the third and potentially the most important reason why health is a non-optimal motivator for physical activity is because Think about it. On any given day, we have so many urgent things to do, so many important things to do. And if you're exercising for health, how high up on the to-do list is it going to be? It's not something urgent. It's, even, when, even if there's chronic health-related issues, typically we have so many other more time-sensitive urgent issues it just doesn't rank. So that those are the reasons why when, you know, again, when I got that finding and I had to try to understand it, you know, that was what I discovered. And, and, you know, since that time, and, you know, I coach people too. So I get to live and breathe this research with actual um, individuals. And it's just clear, it doesn't make health doesn't make physical activity relevant and compelling on a daily basis. And in a nutshell, so that's kind of what that is kind of the why is why did we get this finding then the next part of the question um is well then what do we do about it and that's that's where rebranding re comes in and so a lot of people in, ac in academia may not be familiar with you know the the, the specifics of branding and branding is a process that aims to create specific experiences, associations, often non-conscious. Um, and so if exercise is explicitly aiming to improve our health or help us lose weight, it's branding it most likely in medical ways with ick medicine. You know, side note here, editorial, 
you know, exercise is medicine is a wonderful branding campaign for health, for clinicians to understand the high value of exercise for patients. But it's a terrible campaign for individuals because um, people don't even take their medication. You know, there's a 50% adherence rate to medication. So why on earth would we use a campaign to promote exercise for the when the original behavior taking medication it is it isn't even effective for that right right so but that's what branding does so branding gives a behavior often unconsciously associations purpose and meaning and so if health and weight related reasons are really bad for promoting long term sustainability for physical activity then what's going to be good and you know, my research, um, as well as others, points to immediate positive experiences. We could call them positive mood, reduced stress, higher energy, you know, feeling more enthusiastic, you know, well-being, whatever it is, that's what we want to rebrand exercise as. And, and it's because of the way our brain works. We, human beings, um, we uh, privilege having positive experiences over something, you know, that practical and pragmatic that we have to wait for. We want to feel good now. So when we can help people consider and associate physical activity as a behavior, as a choice that helps us feel better now, that hooks us into the neuroscience of reward, and there's no stronger motivator than that. I love that. And as a matter of fact, that that was question two was to tell us a little bit about um, why using that medical framework really doesn't translate to, to the sustainable behavior change. And I love that you are tying this to the neuroscience because that's what our neuroeducation initiative at, at Hopkins and I had the, the last um, guest I had was Dr. David Eagleman and talking about how, you know, we have to think about how the brain works and how, you know, that exercise is a behavior. So we need to think about these things because then it's going to change the way we teach on the ground and the way, and like you said, the way we brand and the way we market. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about that really kind of aligns with what you were talking about is sometimes people also have an intuition that, you know, making a commitment to regular exercise simply requires more willpower or self-control, but your research has uncovered that, you know, relying on willpower and self-control is problematic. So can you expand a little more on that? Because it, it aligns with what you were just talking about. Well, you know, on a very intuitive common sense level, we have so many things in our daily life that we have to, we have to do. You know, that things that are not fun, things that might be distasteful, things that feel like should. And, you know, how, how many more shoulds are we going to try to force into our lives? So if exercise feels like something that you need to exert willpower to do, there's just no way that most people are going to power through it. And, you know, the reality is, is that there are individual differences in everything. And so I was talking about this issue not too long ago. And, you know, a woman stood up and she was really pretty enraged with me. And she said, I want you to know that I hate to swim 
And I've been exerting willpower every day for 40 years to make myself swim. So, you know, how dare you say that that's not going to work? And of course, nothing is ever true for everyone um, or nothing is always true for everyone. And so, and that's the answer. So she had the wherewithal to do it. You know, it takes a really, really, really disciplined person to do something that you have to exert, to do something that is during your leisure time, that isn't something that you actually have to do, it's optional, to exert willpower day in and day out. Most people aren't going to do it. And so going back to the brain, there are individual differences and some people are, but more people are not. And so we need to build our... um, our methods for individuals as well as our methods to teach professionals who work with individuals based on what is going to work for most people, um, not what works in theory or we wish work. Right, right. I love that. You, you also talk about in your book, and I love this so much, that it's, it's not uncommon for people to believe that the only movement that really counts toward well-being is something that's rigidly scheduled, specific, killer intense in a gym for, you know, like at least 150 minutes a week, because we've, we've sort of been enculturated for this thinking. But in your book, uh, No Sweat, you say that what counts is different from what people think. Can you share with our listeners what you mean by this and, and why understanding that, you know, all movement counts impacts sustainable physical activity behavior change? Absolutely. And it's funny because my, my next book is really all about this issue. It's about, um, we, so the value of physical activity, um, has derived from a medical paradigm because of the research that shows that, you know, it's really great for our health. And, and so out of that way of doing research, we have dose response, um, results. So, you know, it's dose-based, and there's an optimal level, and so exercise has become prescribed in doses, and again, this is a natural, organic occurrence because of just how the value of exercise has come to be in our society, in our current day um, society, so we have been literally, from day one, prescribed certain doses, and this gets people to believe, unfortunately, at this point, we know falsely, that it has to be a certain way. It has to be all, not something. So when there's a choice of all or nothing, because life isn't perfect, which it never is, most people choose nothing, because that's the only alternative. If you can't do the all, then there's no choice but the nothing. And so when you start to understand that everything counts, which, by the way, now is the official, you know, um, informal way uh, recommendation uh everything counts the research clearly so shows this um and I, when i wrote the book no sweat which was published seven years ago it was a little bit of a risk for me to come out with that but i felt there was enough uh, enough kind of adjunct research on the motivation side of things and on the app side of things that we we knew that there was a linear relationship and that except for, you know, over-exercising, which is something that few, we have few people do, anything is better than nothing. And, and that's really the public health message. Everything counts and any, anything is better than nothing. Yeah. 
And uh, you also emphasize in No Sweat that your research shows that doing what you enjoy is a better motivate a better motivator for exercising than health goals. And again, you know, that's something that we maybe haven't been enculturated for in the fitness industry because we, you know, we hear even slogans like uh, no pain, no gain, or you have to really be suffering in order for things to work. So can you explain to our listeners uh, the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic exercise motivation goals and why enjoyment is so critical to sustainable behavior change? Sure. So an intrinsic goal is when you do something for because it's, it's an experience, it, it, you know, there's difference, there's a difference between intrinsic goals and intrinsic motivation, and, and it's kind of hard to differentiate. So I think what I'm going to do is focus on the motivation part, because I think it's more straightforward. So when we do something, because we're intrinsically motivated, we, we, we do it, we participate in it because of the inherent pleasure, satisfaction, enjoyment that it gives us. And that could be, you know, if you love to compete, then the feeling of competition could be an intrinsic motivator for you. Or if you love to spend time running around with your kids, that could be an intrinsic motivator for you. And, you know, I have to say, I don't know, I, I don't think there has been any kind of official decision about whether health is officially an intrinsic or extrinsic um, motivator uh, officially because I think it depending on the methods that are used and some, like in my research it really landed more as an extrinsic motivator but for other people it falls on the intrinsic motivation um, continue on, on just in that arena and so that and that's why it's kind of a confusing counterintuitive thing but when we when we exercise for extrinsic reasons it's because, or for extrinsic motivation, it's things like because your doctor told you to, or because you feel like you sh you should do it. That's extrinsic, more along the lines of feeling a should is kind of an introjected feeling where you have partially internalized this extrinsic. Society tells me I should, so I actually think I should. That's so it's not a pure extrinsic. Sorry, it's very, you know, I don't want to get too technical, but I want to make sure that I say it in an accurate way. So, you know, you might do it to impress others. You might go to a gym because it's the in thing to do. Those are all extrinsic. Those are, you're extrinsically motivated when you exercise for those reasons. And the reason why intrinsically, intrinsic motivation is, is so much more important as a sustainable motivator is because again it hooks into the the neuroscience of reward in the way our brain works our brain likes what feels good and then we want it and we keep we keep wanting it and um that's actually uh you know that's how it works and that's why we want to connect um physical activity with these positive experiences like enjoyment and you, you bring that into a really uh, incredibly apropos and memorable acronym called MAPS, M-A-P-S. Uh, so this is very actionable strategy to help people guide themselves to and through sustainable behavior change. And I love this imagery because it, um, it reminds me, obviously, of MAPS and, and behavior change is certainly a journey and we use MAPS to guide our journey. Can you tell our listeners what the what that acronym stands for and just maybe a brief explanation of its role in um in helping people to find 
you know, actionable ways to move forward with this out of just the theoretical perspective? Sure. Um, so MAPS was the organic framework that came to the surface as I spent a couple years studying this situation. Um, MAPS stands for meaning. What is the meaning of physical activity or of the behavior can be used for other behaviors too? Is it, does it feel like a chore or a gift? That's the dichotomous um, uh, measure that I use. And then awareness. Um, what beliefs we need to become aware of the beliefs we have that are guiding our choices. We have to become aware of the actual real barriers that are getting in our way. Um, um, and there, people often say things like, I'm not motivated, I don't have time, but those are real, so those are smoke screens to what's really getting in the way for the most part. Um, permission. Permission stands for. Um, do we give ourselves permission to prioritize uh, our own self-care on, on, a, on a deeper level? Physical activity is a self-care behavior, no matter what reason we do it for. And so if we don't feel comfortable or entitled um, or feel selfish, giving us, you know, taking time for our own self-care, then that's a, a immediate derailer of sustainable change. And then finally, as a strategy, it's about the logistics. It's about planning and problem solving with barriers and that sort of thing. That is fantastic. And you know, on the permission in the case study that I ran, that it was very interesting to hear. And and I work with women um, that that was very difficult for them to feel to not feel guilt about taking care of themselves. So that. That was some um, very interesting findings, but um, I love that. I love that acronym, and it's very it's memorable and very useful. Which um, makes brings me to the next question about your next book coming out, uh, "The Joy of Choice," and it's coming out. I think was April Tuesday, April twenty sixth. How to finally achieve lasting changes in eating and exercise. Can you give us a little teaser about what to look forward to in that book? Sure, I'm so excited about it. This book, it explains the emerging science um, about how we can better cultivate our brain's self-management system so that when we're at a challenging, what I call choice point for either uh, following some type of eating plan we're trying to follow or an exercise plan we have, we can actually cultivate what are called our executive functions and just a user-friendly way to think about it. It's just our brain has this innate self-management system and we can, we can cultivate, we can support it in a way so that we um, make the choice that is to stay consistent with our greater goal. And actually there's another acronym POP that, that is a decision-making tool that helps readers um, actually take them through the process of supporting um, this innate system. And, you know, one of the things that I say in the book that I don't think a lot of people realize, and this might be viewed as a little um, counterintuitive, but, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of people who talk about habit formation as the, is really the right and best and easiest way to stick with a behavior. Let's put it on automatic pilot. Let's offload that from our need to think about anything. But there are actually assumptions that underlie success. 
successful habit formation that most people cannot meet when it comes to complicated behaviors like physical activity and healthy eating. And I talk about the science behind those things. So that's the teaser I'm going to leave your listeners with. And one thing I will say if people are interested, um, in, it's, it's, I don't know when this is going to be aired, but in a couple weeks, so probably by the time this is up, there's going to be a quiz on my website and there's a pre-order wonderful um, workbook and I'm going to do a, a live book club with people who pre-order the book before that date you said. So if these, if the, these new ideas sound at all intriguing, I hope people will you know, learn more about the book on my website. I am so excited about that because, by the way, <laughs> I am one of the people signed up. <laughs> I pre-ordered the book. Yay! I think that it's going to be very exciting, and I'm going to also get my listeners and the people that I work with to participate in this as well, because I think this is really where we need to be looking to help to um, increase physical activity levels and to help people to understand that they have the tools within them but you know we've had some messaging that's been really counterintuitive to the science that we are learning and so I feel like I just feel like your work is revolutionary it's been really the backbone of my dissertation <laughs> uh, because I do think it's very different from the kinesiology and the behavior messages and in instructor preparation for in the fitness world there just really isn't much mention of this and I feel like we've got this really untapped landscape that we can move into with this science to um, get instructors, fitness instructors, and people that, anybody who works with people who are moving to use those spaces as educational spaces to bring, you know, like your research and your work into spaces for the, the stakeholders and the people whose lives it can change. So I'm super thrilled about this. I, I just think what you're Thank you. Amazing. And we are at our last question. So what I was hoping um, is I always like to leave my listeners with something actionable that they can literally do right now or today. And you beautifully talk about reframing movement. I love this so much as gifts we give ourselves and encourage us to be creative and move in whatever ways we can. You also playfully describe finding ways to build movement into our day as a treasure hunt. <laughs> so can you maybe leave our listeners today with either two or three maybe potential hidden opportunities to move either alone or as a couple with friends or their kids and just give them a little something to think about after and to do after this, uh, after they listen? Sure. Well, you know, it's there are in a way the opportunities to move or OTMs as some people call them are very mundane. But literally, your listeners could stand up right now and just walk around if they're not driving, um, and just <laughs> walk around for the next couple of minutes. And the 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 very important thing ties back to what we were talking about earlier everything counts and something is always better than nothing. So given that truth, what can, what are easy things to do? Something that I do is I, you know, decide I'm going to leave five minutes early for a meeting and I park, you know, the same amount away. So I get a little five minute walk before and a five minute walk after on the way back. 
because it's the all or nothing thinking. And again, this is what the next book is about. All or nothing thinking is really the core derailer. People say, oh, it's not worth it. But research shows it really is that there are real benefits to getting up and doing something for one or two minutes. It does not have to make you sweat. It does not have to be high intensity. Um, of course, those are other great ways to do it. When you believe everything counts, you have a whole menu of possibilities. And just like a menu of food, at any moment, we can ask ourselves, hmm, what do I feel like doing now? What do I need? Do I need energy right now? Well, maybe taking a brisk walk is the answer. Or if people say, gosh, I've had such a stressful day, I just really want to relax and renew myself. Well, then doing something like yoga or taking a slow walk outside in nature could be the answer. So really the sky's the limit. And, and when the, this is another really key point that I want to leave people with. When we reframe physical activity, both why we're doing it, and then we do it in ways that reflect who we are and our preferences, it literally changes three things. It changes whether we want to do it, how we experience doing it, and then ultimately whether we stick with it or not. Oh, that is, that is so exciting. And it's so accessible. It's free. You don't need extra equipment. It's a change of the way we think about it. And I'm just, I am just very thrilled about uh, all the work you're doing and the new book that's coming out. I can't wait. And I thank you so much, Michelle, for being with us today and for this important work that you're doing to contribute to human flourishing and joy and multiple dimensions of well-being. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. We appreciated your time and your expertise and your enthusiasm. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for your interest and thanks for the work you do. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks, Michelle. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to our Brain Body Fitness Podcast with guest researcher, Dr. Michelle Seeger. You can find all the links to Michelle's research, coaching, and books on sustainable behavior change science at michelleseeger.com, S-E-G-A-R. You can find me on Twitter at Brain Body World. Michelle's newest book, The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Changes in Eating and Exercise, is touted as the new story of behavior change, this time with a happy ending. It offers fresh, joyful, and brain-based solutions that turns the old behavior change paradigm on its head. Her book is available for pre-order on several platforms, and all pre-orders come with the Joy Choice Digital Workbook and exclusive access to a live four-session book club with Michelle. Today's challenge? It's to treasure hunt for some OTMs, or opportunities to move. How about, if you're not driving, you stand up and dance with me right now during this podcast's musical outro. Until next time, be well, my friends.